Good morning, good afternoon, good night and welcome to another episode of the Make Motherhood Diverse podcast. I am your host, Remy Sade. I hope you're all doing well and I hope that you enjoy the episode. See you on the other side. Hi Candice, welcome. This is your first time on the podcast, which is pretty cool <laughs> because, you know, you founded the platform MMD. Um, being as you're here though, for those who don't know anything about you, Mm. Tell us a bit about yourself, please. Um, my name's Candice Brathway. I'm a mum of two. My daughter's six. My son is two. Born and raised in South London, but Brixton to be precise. Um, now living my best country life out in Buckinghamshire, aka Norton Keynes. Um, writer, um, content creator, author. Um, founder of Make Motherhood Diverse. The list can go on and on and on. I'm from that multi-hyphenate generation. Um, that's about it. I don't... Uh, gin and yeah, tea. Funny. No, say it with my Like, say it with my chest. And just a supreme advocate for specifically black women living their best lives. Whatever that looks like for them. Absolutely. Yeah. I love that. Um, so yes. we, we're having a conversation. I mean, we talk to each other nearly every day. So this is like a bit weird, actually. Like, <laughs> we're talking to you and thinking. I don't I'm, know why I've got my posh voice on. I like, know, right? We're acting like, like we don't know each other. <laughs> <laughs> PG. <laughs> okay, so we're here today because I'm in and amongst that long list of all the things that you do was author. Ooh. And yeah, debut already best-selling on Amazon. Buy it, like it, swipe up where you can. <laughs> um, what is your book called? And we're going to talk about... My book is... Okay. My book is... <laughs> You're already making me giggle. My book is called I Am Not Your Baby Mother. Yeah, <laughs> I'm not your baby mum's in it. <laughs> I'm in the ghetto. That is actually a really funny meme on the internet for anyone who's <laughs> trying to say that we're, that we're doing no, some I still, bad news. I still live in Brixton. I, well, I still live in Brixton. Yeah, it's called I'm Not Your Baby Mother. It's a very, it's a very strong title. Yeah. Um, and it was a non-negotiable title when I took the, the uh, proposal to my publishers, the people who I ended up going with. It was like, you do not get the proposal without that title. It was that simple. I was very committed to it from the offset. And normally, like most creatives, I think sometimes you feel like um, your creative process, you know, you have to stew on it. Like you have to let it simmer. No, the conception of the book and the title all came together in less than 24 hours. It was a long road to that day. But when that day came... It's like everything just clicked together. And I remember you were obviously, this was not, like you said, it was a long road. It was a process. This was not the original, I guess when you thought of the book that you were going to release first, this was not the original idea. At all, at all. I I rejected the idea of a book about motherhood in any capacity with every strand of my DNA. Um, I work in an environment where it feels like books about parenting and motherhood are, and this is not me being disrespectful, this is me just being honest, there are a dime a dozen. And I genuinely, and I'll say this bit with my chest, I genuinely feel like I'm a gifted writer. And I didn't want to get lumped into a niche that struggles to get the respect it deserves primarily because publishing is a business and like most businesses publishes publishing houses tend to struggle and so the go-to thing is to go out onto social media find those people with really massive followings where they know they're going to get a return on whatever book they're putting out that doesn't always mean that the the person you've bought a book from actually knows what they're doing or is actually a gifted writer and I did not want to be uh I didn't want to be bound to that it was really the fruition of this book and I'm 
I, th- I guess I'll speak more openly with you than I would anyone else, even though I know other people are going to hear this. But the fruition of th- this book for me on a personal level was very put some respect on my name because wow. I'm not. Yeah, I'm not just I'm not just an Insta mum. I've I have had to reverse engineer how I have used Instagram to get what I actually came into the game for. Would you mind if I read a piece of the intro of your book, like two sentences? Girl, go for it. Go okay, for it. and the Talk reason because <laughs> I can't remember what I wrote. <laughs> the reason that I want to the reason that I want to read this is because. Your book is called I Am Not Your Baby Mother. And Mm. some people know the phrase to be baby mother or baby mama. Um, And the way that they understand it is not the way that I guess we understand it. So I'm just going to read basically a really Mm. good definition of this word. And then we're going to get into all of that as well. So Mm. you've said in your introduction, by the way, guys, this is like page two, like snatching wigs from page two. two. This is literally like page anyway. So it says, before the term baby mother was co-opted by the mainstream and repackaged as this cool title, often edited to the Americanized baby mama, within the thickened walls of the black community, it was quite literally the mark of the beast. Um. Did, did I write that? <laughs> <laughs> so I I particularly love this because also what you go on to explain is that also baby mother, the phrase you're someone's baby mother, specifically mm-hmm. refers to somebody who is a single parent mm-hmm. within our community, mm-hmm. who is also mm-hmm. young. Basically, by definition, I'm a baby mother because... I'm a young parent who is also a single parent. And mm. that, is the, that is by our standards what the definition means. However, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. this is also 2020. And <laughs> so in this, day and, in this day and age, when people say baby mother or baby mama, you see, you know, like really cool social media videos and you see Ooh. women of all ages and all races and all relationship statuses reclaiming mm-hmm. the title mm-hmm. so some people might pick up your book and think to themselves well she's got two children why would she say I am not your baby mother so I'm curious why that was the title because I know you said that you came up with the concept of the book within 24 hours and the title was non-negotiable I just want to ask you why yeah um because and you know we'll skip a lot of steps here but this will encourage people who haven't who haven't bought it to buy it I guess I think you yourself because you've read it by the time you finish reading that book you really do question what baby mother even means Mm. you question what it means to yourself you question what it means by those who say it to or about you you question it from the father of your child's perspective but what i what that title means to me what saying baby mother in that title means to me is that I am of I am owned by no one I'm not owned by white society I'm not owned by white women I'm not owned by black men I'm not even owned by the father of my children who would usually be the first one to use that term on me I'm not yours simple and what's so interesting about the title is I guess then if you're feeling frisky you could replace baby mother with whatever you're feeling that day um that week I wrote the proposal I was heavily influenced by James Baldwin Mm. who of course has uh the documentary under his name I am not your negro and it's such a powerful documentary and I'm 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 heavily influenced by African-American literature not because I want to be but because that's all that has been available to us for a very long time as black people who are outside of the US of A. And he is so poetic and he's so forthright and he's black and he's gay and he's educated. And I just thought, yeah, I am, I am, I know we hear that saying all the time, I'm my ancestors' wildest dreams. Now I'm literally my mum's wildest dream. Sometimes I'm her worst nightmare. Like it's mad. <laughs> I am, I I am on I am on a trajectory that I think sometimes, and I don't mean to be blasphemous, I may even shock God. He's like, oh, shit. Okay, girl. Okay. 
let's go then. Do you know what I mean? And so for me, using that as a, as a title, it, I just wanted it to remind young black women specifically, all black women, but young black women specifically that don't let people put these words on you. You don't have to wear these labels. You may get to that end of the book and actually be like, rah, I feel like I can inherit the term baby mother because it, it means something different to you or certain things you read in that book you might gain strength from. But in, in its immediacy, I just wanted young girls to understand that no one don't own you. And um, this might be your little guidebook to missing a lot of potholes. Yeah, that's deep already. Yeah, wow. it's so deep, so deep. I can <laughs> Let me sip my gin. By the way, for those of you who are listening, um, like I said, we speak to each other regularly and mm. I refused to discuss this book with her until I finished reading it in its entirety. <laughs> but between me getting the book and finishing it, there was probably, what, about a week, week and a half? Um, mm-hmm. And she tried to talk to me about it a few times. And one of the times I was like, I'm going now, bye. I need to go and read the book. Like, I can't talk to you about this. And it's one of those pieces of writing that you you read as a body of work and you read in individual pieces and you take so much from it that mm. you kind of need to like sit with it and digest it and to be fair yeah yeah so so if someone and bless bless it bless if someone does this because it shows how actively they support my work but the book comes out may 28th if someone is ready to critique and review by may 30th we have a problem mm. we have a sincere problem because i the writer and i'm still sitting with some of the stuff i wrote so this isn't to say that you don't know what you like when you first taste it, but let the notes marinate. Because there are a lot about, of them. I want to talk about how you opened up the book. So I'm going to try and talk about some of the things you've written in here in depth, and some of them we're just going to leave it to the reader. I'm not going to say how you opened up the book because you've spoken about it before. So if people know, they know. And if they don't, buy the book, guys. It's available on Amazon, all major bookstores, okay? Um basically you opened up the book and you you said you wanted to set the tone of the book and so you spoke about something that within the black community is a taboo that could have come up any point in at any point in the book the way that the book is written is not chronological which means you could have chosen to bring that up at any point but you chose to open up the book with a taboo although like you said this is a book specifically to speak to young black women. Why did I open with that? Hmm. Um, the stakes are really high for me. The stakes are really high for me. I had to really fight to get a book deal. And between the way publishing is set up and how I feel after writing this, this may be the only book I ever write. So no sentence can go to waste. No hook can go to waste. No chapter can go to waste. I do not have the liberty of spending three chapters to then box you in the fourth. Nah, fam. <laughs> Sometimes you just need to like hold someone in the crook of their neck in the first chapter. And I feel like what I opened with did that. And I also did that because I am a great, a great believer um, in hanging my dirty laundry. Mm before anyone else gets into my linen basket. I'm a great believer in that. Not that I perceive what I open with it to be dirty, but um, our, our community, and if I reference the term our during this podcast, I mean black in our community, something like that is meant to be taken to your grave. And I'm like, you know, I think I briefly discussed this with you, but this book is me falling on my sword so 10,000 16-year-old black girls don't have to. Yeah. It's boring. It's played out. The things that we are taught, especially as girl children, I can't even call us women, as girl children to hide, to sit with, to labour with. Man, you know, you know we're, we're turning 18, 19, 20 with more trauma than you can shake a stick at for the next 30 years. Mm-hmm. And so I needed to open with that just so for specific readers 
they understand that I see you, I feel you, I hear you, but I'm not ashamed. So here I am standing in my truth. And I need you to understand that this is the tone of this, this piece of writing you've picked up. And we're going to walk through this together. Now, if, if you know, if the first chapter disgusts you or whatever, then it's not the book for you. But I know who I had in mind when I sat at my laptop and cried or threw my laptop across the room more time. And so I knew that those type of people would appreciate that emotional dragging from the gate. Well, speaking of the emotional dragon at this point, I would like to ask you, if you are triggered by certain things, we're going to discuss yes. something in chapter three. Basically, we're going to discuss sexual assault. So you've got five, four, three, two, one. Right, Candice. So in chapter, are you sipping your drink, honey? Because I just took a swig of mine. Um, yeah. I've got my notes here and it just says, page 50, we look too much like them. And then at the top of that, it says, did it feel like, you know, validity? And I know what I'm referencing and I'm going to explain this to you. So Mm. in chapter two, it was chapter two, right? You spoke Mm. about your experience of being raped. And the... And this is, this is where I'd say we do, we do as a community have certain traumas, like you said, that are Ooh. embedded in us in our childhood. I didn't find it hard being given the knowledge that that happened to you. I found it hard reading what you remembered because Ooh. far too often when we have these conversations and, and this, this conversation about sexual assault in some ways is raceless and in other ways the the way that it happens within our community and the the i guess the dialogue afterward is mm. specific there's a certain kind of the way the conversation goes or even how the situation arises that i can't speak for other cultures but this ideology of not victim shaming and not blaming mm. somebody else i feel like you took back a lot of your power and you said what you remembered and that whole idea of being believed and validated in those moments is Mm. a conversation that like, you know, there were friends who you could have spoken to or could have maybe made a different suggestion. And there was, you know, you you were very honest about the circumstance under which it arose and how you handled Mm. it. Do you feel like looking back on that situation now as an adult, you, you wrote it, in the way that you did because maybe you didn't hold that space for yourself previously? Um, Yeah, completely. I think I didn't... uh, I think our culture, the women of our culture, have had to carry so much trauma, specifically in relation to sexual assault and rape, that it's graded it's graded and so it wasn't violent I wasn't left on the side of the street struggling for my life do you know what I mean and so that made it easier for me to just shove down Mm. it's like yeah well you know actually within the framework of rape you were so lucky cool and I think young black girls get into the habit of just counting your lucky stars you know what I mean you're like rah we are we are trained almost to search for the silver lining in the many gray clouds that follow us through life it's always this big traumatic thing that that could sometimes force other people to commit suicide I can see black girls quickly go to rah well at least I'm not dead fam at least I'm not in you go straight there so I think that made it easier for me to park it. Um, no one would know what happens inside a writer's room or in their mind when you're trying to write something like that. I thought I could write this book and not speak about it. Mm. Chapter two was written really late, really late. Like chapter two was one of the last to be submitted because I kept trying to craft it not understanding how central that experience was to that moment. 
And every time I read that chapter back to myself without that rape mentioned, it just wasn't hitting. It wasn't clicking. I was like, you know what's missing here. And you are just being majorly avoidant. Like you have to go back in. I can smell this guy. I can smell him right now I can smell him and so you really have to go into some places where a therapist hasn't even been with me yet Mm. um but again and you know this is going to keep coming up I'm going to sound like a broken record it's for the greater good my I am not your baby mother as a body of work has done its job when the things mentioned the bad things mentioned in that book or the the harsher things that come a black woman's way mentioned cease to be the overarching theme of our lives. And one of the things you mentioned, no, go on, go on, go on. Another one of the things you mentioned when you was talking about just sexual assault, not your specific experience, but you said that so often when you spoke to other black women, they referred to the person who raped them as uncle or it would be somebody that was a partner sometimes as well because I think some Mm -hmm. people might be wondering what is the relevance if you didn't if you didn't have a um if you didn't become a mother out of that situation some people might be questioning what is the relevance to the the story of um like I am not your baby mother but I think it's important when you said, you know, sometimes boyfriend, even husband. Um, and, you know, the other thing you said was the silence surrounding them. And unfortunately, the conversation around consent within our community. Yeah. Sometimes yeah. this is like, you know, you don't want to put your, your, like your family business or your house business out there. But sometimes the conversation around consent culturally can be quite dated. So mm-hmm. what you described, how it happened, like you said, is not unique to you. However, no. how many people would recognise that they have experienced that too? What's interesting is I am spiritually stealing myself for women of all races, but most specifically black, understanding through that chapter alone that it was rape. Mm. And and my my tone is flat there because I don't need to dance with the cadence because it's not something that's in your mind. Yeah. It's not it's not your fault. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It was rape. Full stop. No exclamation mark. Nothing fancy. And I need me writing that and recognizing that for myself is gonna make other women recognize that for themselves. And then if they are mums, that experience, the way walking it back in my head now as a mum, I am looking for the gaps in my children's lives where I may have to throw my body down to be a bridge. Because the gaps... I would say maybe in my behavior or the things I didn't have or the attention I was seeking was there. And that's not to say that that rape was my fault, but if there is a way I can stop my children from getting into a situation where they have arrived at that point, just through lack of self-love, if I can do that, like that's on me, you know, I can't prevent everything, but I can prevent my kids, boy and girl from going into a situation feeling unworthy I'm I'm I might I might I don't want to give away that it's not even a story it's my real life I don't want to give it away but I perhaps might not have ended up in that situation if I felt differently about myself I won't use the term better but maybe differently that is no excuse for what he did to me but that I do have to think about my headspace at that time as in just turned 18 year old um and there is a there is a there is a 
there is a theme of parental lack mm. not just in my life but obviously reflected in this body of work also so deep bruv so- <laughs> this is like we're having such a sophisticated conversation right now like <laughs> this is so like i'm just listening like yeah, seriously <laughs> um at the beginning of the book you also spoke about your grandparents mm-hmm. And you spoke about yeah. growing up in their household and you spoke about your grandfather being your primary caregiver and mm-hmm. being the, what do we call, what do we call the domestic um, pa- parental figure as well in the household? Like they yeah. were, did, you know, the, in terms of conjugal roles, he quote unquote fulfilled female ones when actually he was just doing what he needed to do. But um it was at a time when the the gender roles and conjugal roles were clearly defined between male and female, and he was doing Ooh. what was not considered to be his role. Um, but that was a foundation for you. And yeah, completely. Do you think that? Do you think that having, in fact, not do you think because you wrote about it? How did you feel about having a primary caregiver who was male? Did you know it? Did you know that it was different? If you did know it was different, when did you notice and how has that kind of shaped your view moving forward in life? I knew it was different because as a kid, you just see like all these mums picking up their kids after school. And then I see my granddad in his Del Boy coat and his wood pipe, just not trying to interact with the lady gossip. Mm -hmm. So I knew it was different, but I automatically thought it was better. And I just thought it was better because I think my granddad's the best, point blank, period. So I don't care who little Jemima's being picked up by. I'm like, oh, cute. Your mum's okay. But I've got my granddad, so let's be out. <laughs> you know, like, I just, I just, the, the his, his love for me is so plentiful that it has, it will carry me till I die. And should nature have its way, he will surely die before me. But he put so much into me that I am abundant in ways that I have not yet even had to tap into. Like, it's, they're not even resources I've had to touch because he was just so up in investing in me and my confidence and or any pitfalls or any lack of self-confidence that invaded my my preteen years, my teenagers, my early twenties. I think his. I have landed in a spot, and shout out to my other half for this. I've landed in a spot that has reminded me that actually I just want to end up with someone like my granddad in a lot of ways, and that has been my comfort and my strength, and. Without him, you know, I, I, I love my nan too, but without my granddad, we would not be having, you wouldn't know who Candice Braffway is. That, that is that. I, I, I don't even have the words to try and express how central he is to the woman I am today. Highs and lows. There were times as a, as a, as a late teen in my early 20s where he would come and scoop me out of just some dens, bruv. I don't, I don't want to go into detail because this might be book two, but some absolute dens. And I could barely get my words together and he would be like, and I love you regardless. He really is the embodiment of what any church would say that a Jesus type of love is. Like, no sin is too big. He has always been that guy who is like, if you do the worst thing ever... I'm going to help you hide a body. Simple. Simple. And anyone, any child, any, no, any human needs that. I'm just, I'm just lucky to have it in like a living form because a, a lot of people, of course, um, use their faith for that reason. I have my faith, but I'm lucky that I have that, that unjudgmental love from someone that is walking this earth. I think that's such a beautiful answer. I have no further questions on your granddaddy. Sounds great. Shouts out to him. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, 
I want to quickly move on because Ooh. we are doing this on Zoom. So we're going to have to come back in a second. There might be an interlude mm-hmm. in the episode. I haven't decided, guys, but just work with us, okay? Um, <laughs> I want to talk really, really, really quickly because, I've, in fact, no, we can't talk about it too quickly. So we, we just, we're going to talk about it till we can't anymore. Talk to me about the cultural difference between Candice planning for a family <laughs> and falling pregnant. The cultural difference. Girl, where do you want to start? With that? <laughs> it's such a deep, that's why I thought to myself, quickly, come on, Remy, be serious. Like, <laughs> where do you want to start with that? I will say that the cultural difference between like starting a family or just having a baby uh, within black culture began way before I was even a speck in my mother's womb and I could never do that stream of consciousness justice in this book Mm. because I'm not even yet that educated so I'm not even gonna lie and try and bluff my way through there are things and systems in place um, way before we were even doing what we're doing that have helped dictate and unravel the idea of black commitment, black love, black family and black unity. Mm. And so by the time a black girl or black woman arrives at this door of motherhood, the reason why she's perhaps holding the handle alone has very little to do with her. And I just, I need that to be clear. And also, you know, I think it's important to be said, neither of us, first or subsequent pregnancies neither of us regardless of how they oh, end, neither of us <laughs> planned any of them have bruv, you had any of your pregnancies? Uh, RJ snuck up on me Same. RJ snuck up on me now, not only did RJ snuck up on me I feel like RJ ate the morning after pill on his way <laughs> to my womb he was like yeah nice snack mum see you soon And it is is important to talk about that because, you know, family planning and trying to conceive is a really serious subject. And I, Mm. as a black woman, had no knowledge of it until post-baby, until my child had been born. And I was aware Mm. that I was aware that people were trying to conceive and I was aware that family planning was a thing but I, I wasn't aware of it on any scale. It literally was like some kind of unicorn whisper in the wind that I just yeah. didn't think applied. And a lot of that is because, because the majority of black women that I've come across fell pregnant with their first child. Um, Girl, breathe on us and we got pregnant. Literally, like, literally because of that, it means that there is a certain... And and you can't, you, and I would also say as well, when it comes to having a child, I don't think you can talk about, and, I, and I'm saying this because I think depending on where you slice it and what angle you're coming from, I don't mean you can talk about it in terms of privilege because, okay, so some people okay. would say that, you know, a young girl who doesn't have the means to care for a child falling pregnant is a privilege. And other people would say that somebody being able to save up for IVF plan and have a child is a privilege too. So it Mm. just depends which way you slice it. But I will say that it's not common for women who look like us to plan to have their children. At all. And just based on... on, Sorry, go on. Just based on, on, on something that everyone understands, because I know some people struggle to understand white privilege or class, everyone understands their money. Everyone understands what is or what isn't in their bank account. And just looking at it from an economic perspective, we are not supported in a way that allows us usually to think of things like that. Yeah, sure, I'm going to plan to have three kids and a picket fence on 720 an hour getting someone tea and coffee. Yeah, cute, grand idea. It just very rarely falls in to our psyche because we are usually in um what <laughs> so funny to use this term now but what the government and the world would um, label as low skills and also low paid work for very few thoughts of our own but I'm sure that will come up from another chapter of the book because you know I got the data and facts to back that up um so I'm just like yeah that was not even outside of my own personal trauma 
and perhaps the fact that I felt like I'd done mothering before, just from a, a coin perspective, plan what? It was so hard. And, and you know, I can speak openly because Remy's known me from them times. More times I was eating at this one bug restaurant called Speedy Noodle in Brixton. Like, bruh, Speedy Noodle. You used to eat Some? protein bars as well when you was going running. Protein bars, bruh. <laughs> so I used to live on protein bars and the bulk special fried rice from Speedy Noodle that never passed their, their hygiene clearance. Um, rest in peace, Speedy Noodle. Yeah. I, yeah, I'm going to think about how I'm going to afford SMA with my protein bar and dry fried rice. Like, I could barely feed myself. Um, and not just because I was young and living my best life, but even for a lot of young black women I know who are literally fresh out of uni, you're just now left with crippling debt. And you still have to fight to get a foot on this career ladder where you know certain Sam and Billy's are going to step on your knuckles to get where they're going. It's a hard slog. And in that slog, motherhood is not something you plan for because you can just about plan for yourself. And that is why we fall pregnant more so than planned families. Oh, girl. Let me tip my GMT for this conversation. (laughs) Before we started recording, I said, we're going to go deep. So grab a drink. I'm going to grab one too. These are the results. (laughs) On to chapter three. Chapter Mm -hmm. three is called Secure the Baby Bag. Yes. Tell me about the I suffered mentality. This is really interesting because I feel like chapter three is the first time you don't get an emotional dragging and you're allowed to come up for air. But then for those of us who really know the complicated layers of the black community, it still may pull up some ill feeling for some because when we talk about money, Mm. and money tied to accomplishments things like getting on the property market all of those things what I have found and I will in this sense I will only ever speak about myself what I have found and what I have seen is that my community really suffers from a suffers really suffers from a well I had to suffer so you should suffer too mentality where I have seen other communities of color grouped together to financially raise their young people up or um, financially put them in a better position than they were the space that I've had to inhabit I've really seen this idea that nah if I had to work a dusty nine to five (laughs) and struggle and scrimp and save and take my jewelry to the pawn shop you know that builds character you better get busy with it um And that really shows up in chapter three because chapter three is primarily about money and financial fortitude um, of which when my daughter was born, I didn't have a lot, if anything at all. And uh, there there were so few, but there, there were people around me at that time who were, were good for it, who were, who were financially solvent enough to really, um, help me but there's there was also this attitude of like well you made your bed you have to lie in it um I live a completely different life now so it's really hard to even say retrospectively what I would have done or what could have been done if I could have foreseen the life I would then build for myself all I know is what I do know is is that I'm not working this hard to send my kids out to go and fend for themselves. Mm. I'm not working this hard for my children to pay another man's mortgage. I'm not, I'm not working this hard for them to think that it is their duty to financially support me. And I, 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 I go, I, I know, I can feel some eyebrows up in a lace front right now. But this is... No, I hear you. Sis, I feel you. It's interesting because um, you, you just answered. So I, my question says, tell me about the I suffered mentality. And the second part of that question says, and how does that affect our community in terms of finance? You answered the whole bloody question. Thank you, honey. Wow. You answered the whole question. And it is, it is, you know, you're right. It is that deep and it is that true. And 
it, yeah, I don't know what else to say except for what you said is precisely what I was kind of looking for, for you to explain to people as well. Because Ooh. also another thing that I just kind of want to touch on while we're here is the fact that the title to this chapter, chapter three we're talking about now is called Secure the Baby Bag. And secure the bag is a phrase that people have heard quite often. So is the phrase baby mama. But both of those phrases originate from within the black community. So when you hear us talk about secure the bag and, and you know, baby mama, it's like a baby mama needs to secure the baby bag. Or she, mm-hmm. the, the trendy version of it, you know, and, mm-hmm. and securing the baby bag. I really like how you also wove into that, your story about your push chair. And yeah. the push chair was... Um, by a really prominent brand at the time. And we both got second-hand versions of this pushchair, actually. But it's interesting because in, in, in the eyes of, I guess, quote-unquote, I guess, people who aren't marginalised, whether that be racially, financially, class-wise, you know, relationship status, people who aren't marginalised, their version of a baby mama is somebody who had this particular pushchair. And you went to go and collect your pushchair from somebody and you precisely detailed a microaggression. Um, How did it feel writing about that girl? Because like you said, now you're in a new position, but that girl, she she was skint. She didn't plan her baby and she trekked halfway across the city to go and buy something with hard-earned money and then experienced a microaggression whilst being heavily pregnant. So I just want to I felt really, I, yeah, I felt really, I feel really sad for that version of Candice. I feel really sad. And not just because of things like being black and being poor and, and grow up, growing up in a space where sometimes even dreaming big can get your dream killed quick. Mm. Um, but also I feel sad because now I'm actually not not just because my life has changed financially, but because I've now actually had two babies, I really have to grapple with how insignificant something like the brand of your posture is. Sure. But I do mention, I think it is in that chapter, how, you know, how when um, people of all races talk down on young black people, specific, specifically black boys, and they say stuff like, yeah, how, how can he have a rolly and he don't even have a house? Like, man's got on the new air max 95s and can't can't even pay rent all those things what really makes me and you know i mentioned it what makes me sad and frustrated about those kind of judgments is um my ancestors came to this country only knowing their sunday best and using clothes as a way of trying to evoke um protection and standards and hierarchy yeah, you could put a sign on your pub to say no black, no dogs, no Irish, but my granddad is still going to have on a three-piece suit. And I said it in the book, my granddad's favourite, like one of his favourite lines is, if you don't have a pound in your pocket, no one should know it. There is something about the line of people that I come from that really, really take pride in how they dress and using that as a way of protecting themselves. And I feel like how dare we look down on young people, young black people, for trying to portray an idea of riches that they may never touch. They may never touch it, but through things like clothes and accessories, it's like a fast track to that falsehood of, um, of success, to that falsehood of protection. You know full well you're sleeping on a mattress in your mum's living room, but it's okay because you're slapping on a 15 grand rollie and to your to your mates and to people who aren't going to think so deeply you know you've got your shit together and so acquiring a name brand pushchair for me was my version of that I was putting a financial plaster on a gangrene limb hoping that no one would notice that behind the scenes I don't have a pot to piss in and in the world we come from where money is king, like how dare I be trying to even say that I'm going to be a half decent mum and I legit don't know how I'm feeding my kids. But if I walk past you with this push chair, you're not going to think that. Like how layered is that? That's so just... layered. And I think it's even more layered because in that chapter, you also said that your dad's passing in a really weird, weird way allowed you to not have to explain yourself. Yeah. Um, yeah. 
I have never. And I read that and I was like, <laughs> that is that. But also, my heart broke a bit because it's like, <clears throat> both my parents are living, but I totally understood the sentiment of the guilt and the shame of pregnancy when you don't know how you're going to provide. Bruv. And being, and, and, and having that, that sit in your throat. I don't know how to describe, and unless you've experienced that, unless you've experienced that, it's something that is an indescribable feeling. And it's like, it's a bit of shame. It's a bit of disgust. It's heavily based in fear, but it's also overridden by love. Because yeah, I feel like, I feel like if my dad had been alive then, and it was exactly the same scenario, except that he is alive. I feel like he would have stopped talking to me for a bit. Mm. And I feel like in, in tandem with having to prove myself as a mum, I would also have to prove myself to him. Mm. And he would only really respect me, not just as a mum, but as his kid, again, if I could prove that I could do this alone. And that could be me speaking out of turn. He's not here to speak for himself. I have no doubt that. I hear you, but I was also going to say to you, because cause I read that and it was it was like it it was it was gutting, but I also wanted to ask you because I guess you didn't really cover it in the book. You, but you, I guess not cover it, but you didn't write it. But we talk about it. The woman you are now, what would your dad think of her, and what do you think of her? More importantly, because you were speaking about how you felt about yourself then. Well, the woman now, what do I think? I think. My my dad my dad like you I mean he's an Aquarian so he's very insular and it's re- it would have been really hard to get into his head but he was boastful as fuck <laughs> <He's got friends. laughs> and I feel like he would never say it to me but I feel like he'd be in his work office like you see Candice on TV do you see her no you didn't see it let me send you the link one time yes got Tanner <laughs> like I can I really believe right now he would be using um any idea of my success or my career as like some kind of bartering tool for cool points but to my face he would be very cool he'd be like yeah you must have got it from your old dad in it but I know and I and and I feel this so sincerely now because he has friends who reach out to me all the time and let me know they are like god if your dad was alive we would not hear the last of anything you are doing right now like you you didn't know it because he never showed you that side of himself but there wasn't a 10 minute gap in the day where Candice wasn't the subject of conversation and hearing those things from his friends is really heartwarming because I although I know he loved me he never showed me that side of pride for me Mm. ever so to hear that from people now even in retrospect really takes my breath away me we had this conversation the other day me thinking about the woman I am now it's so funny I think the girl from that was eating at speedy noodle would walk past me now even though in theory we should look exactly alike I do not think they would recognize each other Mm. I don't think I think it's really easy to follow someone on social media and try and piece their life together and I don't think people could truly ever appreciate the way in which my life has changed in less than half a decade yeah, it's, it's actually a whole new, it's a whole new, a whole it, new, there, like, proper. <laughs> there are no words, there are no words, like, it's been, like, more, like, not even 360, I've just been vaulted into a completely different universe, but I think what, I think the most incredible thing about the change has been me understanding that I have been 80% the, the, the sole catalyst for said change. Now, that really really blows my mind but we're not always ready to uh hear or heed how we can get busy at changing our lives because it comes at a cost and me changing my life for the better I I have I have had to weather I've had to weather some storms that more than likely would kill other people to be fair and so I, I never want to sell this dream of like, yeah, all I did was this and I bought these crystals and I charted three times and now I'm here. No, the spiritual undoing 
that has happened to me privately and publicly has been something that on a good day I wouldn't wish on my worst enemy so sometimes when we're praying for change you really have to be mindful about the fact that you cannot control how that change is gifted to you yeah I mean, it's just like so deep. I don't even know what to say to you because all I have to say is like really ratchet things that is actually doesn't translate well on podcast. So, well done, friend. That was a really good. <laughs> I'm just like bam, bam, bam. <laughs> um, so, page 102. Yeah, mm-hmm. you might not remember what happened on page 102. But I will remind you of what happened on page 102. By the way, now we're in chapter four. So chapter four is all about naming ceremony, naming our beloved Esme, the firstborn of the Bodoran household. (laughs) (laughs) Before she was earthside, there was a really big conversation (laughs) in your household. I don't know why you're laughing. I'm taking this dead ass. (laughs) So (laughs) there was a really big conversation in your household about her name. Mm. More specifically about her last name now. Yeah. There was, I, I can't even spoil it, guys, because it's just, it's, it's scandalous and it's juicy and it's shocking, but it's also like, oh my days, but I get it at the same time. There was a conversation, or not conversation, discussion about what her name should be, specifically her last mm-hmm. name. Now, you and SMA's dad, Bode, your partner, mm-hmm. were trying to decide mm-hmm. and agree as well, I think. Yeah. Yeah, trying to decide and agree what her name should be. And you were quite gung-ho about what her name should be, and so was he. However, and I literally wrote hard pill for many of us to swallow. He said Mm. to you something to the effect of, I'm sorry that you don't want to repeat the past and that your parent situation didn't work out. That is Mm. a very, but I read that and I sat back like, shit then, did he really say that? Oh my gosh. Do you know what? Do you know what? And I'm going to tread carefully because people who know us online or whatever, and if you read the book, you'll understand that he is uh, of Nigerian heritage. I'm of um, Caribbean, more specifically, Bayesian and Jamaican. That in itself was a problem. That's another problem. We're coming to that. Don't worry. I've got questions on that. We're coming to that. (laughs) But um, uh, here is my thing. And I, I really want to tread carefully because even though these things do I will just say it because we're friends and I want to speak frankly and also, I'm half Nigerian it, and I'm half Caribbean so you can also just telepathically communicate with me and I can say exactly it. but I'm just saying um even though to, to the white people they may not even understand what the issue was when he said something like that it was really not only was it triggering for me having to confront my fears about possibly being left alone to raise this child and then becoming quote unquote a baby mum, baby mother. Um, what blew my mind is that I was really starting to understand how many, uh, I, I will say West Africans specifically, how many West African women um, were perhaps in unhappy situations and how many West African women uh, or how many uh, relationships that you see are are not all they're cracked up to be. And then I also had to grapple with the understanding that uh, West Africans specifically really, they really believed or believe, I, I want to say believe that the idea of being a baby mother from a Caribbean perspective is like, it's like a want. It's like a, it's like they, they want that to happen. They just want to have a child and then do this whole single mum thing. And hearing what they say that to me, just, it, blew, it still blows my mind. This is the first time during the recording of this podcast, like I'm treading easy because it, it was just a massive explosion in it the was rooted different... in trying to avoid the past, which is something that I definitely took from it with my own personal experiences. I understand that. And what you're basically... But more than that, but more than just avoiding the past, but also confronting the crossovers in the difference of cultures. Because it's mm. so funny that to the, to the naked eye, Bode and I walking down the street, 
of course we must believe the same things think the same things have the same habits no there was such a a, a learning curve for both of us at having to grapple with our Caribbean and West African identities as separate and then as two people coming together I did say this in the book like um uh seeing a a West African person uh have children and, and create a family or build a life marry a Caribbean is a relatively new trend and That's it's still relative- it's still it's still seen as taboo I am the product of a relationship like yours right. and I can say wholeheartedly hands on heart um I've I still have experiences where people don't get it or you know one has issues with the other and a lot Mm -hmm. of culture but also something that I kind of feel like you were trying to say is that the truth is that in terms of womanhood motherhood and all those kind of things in the West African community all of those things originally are rooted in tradition um yeah and that and that tradition and this you know no shade but this is fact that tradition is wrapped around the patriarchy yeah that tradition is never rooted in more specs for the woman of course and so how how do you think i mean well i know that you guys obviously figured it out you've gone and had a second <laughs> child thank goodness you did but how do you think it was for you realizing oh wow like i'm i'm trying to avoid the past i'm trying not to repeat patterns of trauma from my own past i'm also trying to understand the person i'm with who has a difference in opinions to me and it's a cultural mm. difference. Mm. Um, oh, Bob, now, <laughs> okay, this is mad, because this is going so much even deeper than I thought. But again, perhaps second book, I am a black, dark-skinned woman. We do, t- this, this thread does come up in the book, so I, I feel like people who have read it. Colorism, people, we've got it, go on. Sam, I am a black, dark-skinned woman who for years struggled to uh to find love or appreciation from men that looked exactly like me and so I turned my back on dating my own race because I I was never loved by them and I'm a sincere believer that any type of woman should go where love is and so before I had children with Bode I was a serial interracial dater like I would never date a black guy I wouldn't even give a black guy uh the time of day because I just had a really bad history with them respecting me lifting me up loving on me and uh, this again you know uh, Remy when we spoke off of this podcast the other day she was like you know this book is so provocative it feels like sometimes you're asking people to look at the rotten floor of the black community but especially as a black dark-skinned woman I feel like it is my duty to speak about things like this because these are very painful things that can lead to very painful situations further down the road and so to find myself invested in and loving a man that looked exactly like me that is I have fr- I have friends that say well, I used to go to secondary school with who, for whatever reason, we've fallen out of touch. They find me on Instagram who physically DM me and are like, "Wow, you ended up with a black guy! Oh my god, bruv!" With their full chest, they do not hide their surprise because they're like, you know, black guys went into you, and so you made sure you went into them. But here you are with a whole West African like girl. I tip my hat to you. Where I seem to have lucked out, I have to be honest, is I'm with a guy who happens to be West African and happens to believe in tradition, has his own beliefs, but he is committed to the encouragement, support and freedom of women. Point blank period. Yeah, very, very true. Point blank period. And that for me personally has made a huge difference. He has restored my faith, or not even restored, perhaps even birthed the idea in my mind of black love. Um, And him saying that to me really, really made me, for the first time as a black woman, understand that... um, this is weird walk with me but you you won't understand it people listening may understand it understand that deciding to have a baby with someone is actually a partnership 
I actually have to take his opinions on board. And I think prior to that moment, I was moving like he was a sperm donor. Yeah, 100%. I hear that. No, I get it. I get it. I'm not even going to, like, I don't get it. That whole thing of, um, and I think <clears throat> as well, to be honest with you as well, it's like it's safe to trust him to have this baby with, with him. It's safe. Mm. Mm. And the safety and trust is something that is so layered. And I want to go on to chapter five because in chapter five, you speak about your birthing experience. The community here at Make Mother Diverse is always growing and we welcome any and every opportunity to connect with as many of you as possible. The main ways that you can get involved are via our Instagram. The handle is at Make Motherhood Diverse and on there we feature as many stories as possible and we also do Instagram takeovers. The other way is you could come onto the podcast the email address is mmdpodcast at gmail.com and the final way is writing a blog post our website is www.makemotherhooddiverse.com and other than that i hope you enjoyed the episode i've been your host my handle is at remy Chardet, and we will see you next time <laughs>